Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Then I shall die as one of them. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is, Where is the Horse and the Rider? As we batten down the hatches and prepare for the oncoming assault from Isengard. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And also, just to give you guys kind of a heads up on where our coverage is going, the ending of The Two Towers or its last act is kind of split up between three locations, jumping around between Isengard, Helm's Deep, and Osgiliath. Um, We're going to kind of bundle the scenes together logically or by plot thread, just so it's easier to focus on and talk about. Um, So we'll be doing three episodes on Helm's Deep. Um, in, intermixed with that will be two episodes on the Ents, one on the Ent Moot, and one being the last March of the Ents. Uh, it'll be one part Asgiliath when Frodo, Sam, and Faramir make it there. And then we'll bring it all back together for our final episode on the Two Towers with Sam's speech and how they successfully juggled all the storylines leading into the film's big finale. So um, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the upcoming episode, so just be warned. Hey! Give me one of those famous giant beers I heard so much about. Something wrong, Yank? No, it's pretty big, I guess. So, we here at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast are size queens. <laughs> so today's topic is an especially <laughs> massive treat. We're talking bigatures, the giant-sized miniatures used to recreate some of the iconic structures and settings of Middle-earth. Apologies in advance, there's going to be a lot of oxymorons in this. Bigature was coined as a portmanteau by Weta Workshop's Christy Henna, and as a floundering wordsmith myself, that is the dream, to have one of your stupid pawns make it into the language of cinema. (laughs) The giant practical models of Helm's Deep, Isengard, Minas Tirith, and more were specifically pushed for by Jackson, something he loved to work with going back to his earliest student films. This is one of the things where I wonder about the age gap, though. These films came out in the time where you could where you really could just start doing fully digital backgrounds and sets, and most cinema afterwards would do would do so. But miniatures and models were kind of a staple for films of my day. Everyone knows Star Wars, Models on Wires, or even the opening village model for The Muppet's Christmas Carol. But like, I also remember the toy-ass fighter plane crashing into a model satellite dish in GoldenEye. So it was a choice to use miniatures and bigatures instead of fully digital recreations, and a good choice at that. When I say these films live at the nexus of two different eras of filmmaking, it's shit like this, using practical models and specialized cameras in conjunction with digital effects. In not only adapting The Lord of the Rings, but also creating the Ur fantasy film, bigotures help really capture scale and grandeur. There's a reason we can be overwhelmed by the Argonoth, feel it towering over us. These giant models allow for cameras to pan and tilt and circle around them, capturing all the little details and design flourishes that went into building them. 1,000 days of total labor went into creating and filming the bigatures, the most of any FX crew on these films. 
Concept artist and set designer Alan Lee would start the process with an initial design. Weta miniature builders Mary McLaughlin and John Baster would then run the construction of the models themselves, and Alex Funky was the cameraman they worked with. They had to build miniature cameras and use motion control to recreate the same steady pans and swoops as they circled the Tower of Barak-Dur or created the helicopter shot-like effects on the walls of Helm's Deep. Each shot was recreated several times with individual lighting components. One shot with just key lighting, one with just fill lighting, ones with just natural sunlight or moonlight or torchlight, as dictated by the story. The VFX team would combine all of this in post. And the art department would give a pass to the models to determine what sort of detail work was required in terms of vegetation, dust, disrepair, and stonework. Today, we begin our coverage of Helm's Deep, starting with the deep breath before the plunge. This set was one of the first things Alan Lee worked on during the entire production process. Two models were built. A one-fourth scale model, which is big enough for a human to duck through the main gate, which we see in the battle, and a 185th scale model, which was 7 meters tall and 20 square meters on the ground. McLaughlin would create stamps to impress the bricklaying for the Hornberg and the Deeping Wall, and in the behind the scenes of the battle itself, people can be seen lifting the ladders up onto the walls, people who would be edited out and replaced with Urukai. The wall explosion was a one-and-done shot, they blew the 185th scale model near the end of filming, and were able to layer in shots as needed from the quarter-scale model, which was left unharmed. In total, 72 bigotures were built for the making of the Lord of the Rings films. Some of these include Isengard, Meduseld, Minas Morgul, which all the little like flourishes and hanging and buttresses, they actually used dentistry tools to come up with some <laughs> of the shapes for it, which is really cool. Uh, Kirith Ungol which is one of the only bigotures they were actually able to use in the background of an actual set, um, where Sam fights Shelob. Um, the shot of Kirith Ungol in the background is the actual bigoture, um, which Elijah Wood said was actually kind of cool because they actually had a tangible background to work with, nice. um, as opposed to just the blue screen. Uh, the City of the Dead, which included making 80,000 miniature skulls, <laughs> and that shot of the skulls overflowing and swarming Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn, was the most engineering they needed for any visual effect in the entire trilogy. Also, bigotures include Grey Havens, Rivendell, the Argonath, Lothlorien, Khazad-dûm, which included having the bridge actually break for when Gandalf sends the Balrog down, and then, of course, Minas Tirith, which was a 172nd scale model. Um, and there were 1,000 miniature homes built on the city model and they had to actually build certain parts of the city as their own bigotures just so they could capture all the shots that they wanted. And Grand 2 was created as a bigature. Grand was the size of a van in terms of its length nice. and made entirely out of lead or mostly out of lead. So I don't know if those people are suffering from <laughs> lead poisoning. <laughs> I'm going to lick Grand. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so this is, I'm, I am excited to talk about this. I know jack shit about anything like practical props wise. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I really like from this is that, uh, one of the other movies that we talk about, uh, 
ad nauseum on this podcast is, of course, Star Wars. Um, and and there's a really clear through line between the sort of genesis of ILM Industrial Light of Ma- Light Magic and and uh, Weta Workshop and what they were doing with Lord of the Rings. Um, and it, and it's everything from you know Peter Jackson relying on miniatures because that's what he used in his earliest films, his student films. Um, and and uh, if you go watch on on Disney Plus now, there's there's this really excellent. Um, documentary series on it's called Light and Magic and it's about the genesis of ILM uh, and and all of the the sort of work that went into making it the the uh, special effects powerhouse that it is now um, and one of the things that they emphasize right off the bat is is the reason why ILM got so good at what it was good at is um, not just because uh, you know they hired the best of the best um, but because they they were people who had been doing this since childhood and they knew that in a lot of cases going back to the sort of simple um was the way to go you know a lot of the guys who who got their uh first jobs at ILM were people who had lost their jobs after the sort of end of the 1960s um in in commercials where you know if you think of like the early um uh, uh, green giant commercials, you know, they had actually built props for the green giant, um, you know, stop motion animation was how they did a lot of that or, or these miniatures and, and, you know, using a really kind of keen sense of, um, uh, of scale, false sense of scale to, uh, forced, oh, oh fuck. What is it? For a census go, um, to, to kind of create these cool special effects, uh, for commercials in the 1960s product commercials in the sixties. And then that kind of collapsed because that wasn't, you know, it was no longer trendy to do that in the ad industry, but but these guys were kind of kicking around in, in the San Bernardino Valley uh, in, in the 70s, uh, and they all kind of get uh, cajoled, uh, corralled into ILM, and, and they take their knowledge of creating miniatures, you know, when they were kids, they were making miniatures in their yards to make their sort of home films. And they take that to to build out Star Wars as we know it. And and a lot of the things that as they are trying to build these miniatures to create uh, space to create the Death Star to create the the um, uh, emergency launch pod um, from uh, the start of a new hope. All of these things, as they're making these miniatures, they're also finding that one of the more complex parts of filming these things is that uh, you have to make it look like the rest of your your film. As you're talking about with you know motion capture and 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 motion and, and steadicams and making sure that as you're filming things in miniature, the the cuts between the miniature shots and the full scale shots don't look fucking weird. And so, so much of what they were they were doing um, at ILM to get ready for A New Hope was not just um, building these miniatures; it was also building and rebuilding cameras and boom arms and 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 tracking cameras so that they could film almost seamlessly, move almost seamlessly between these miniature shots and and you know the shots of Mark Hamill, Han Solo, uh, Harrison Ford, and and <laughs> Carrie Fisher. Um, and and it's in it's it's kind of fascinating and exciting to see that the the kind of legacy of ILM's work on on Star Wars shows up again in uh, Lord of the Rings, where in some ways, um, you know, Star Wars was really successful because it used miniatures, but then kept everything quite small. Um, you know, there are moments when we see planets get destroyed, but those those are isolated sort of incidents. Um, in Lord of the Rings, they're really taking everything that Star Wars did and then just blowing it up in some senses quite literally to massive scale and so to see that sort of technical um and craftsmanship kind of legacy go from star wars the early days 1976 to uh to, to 1996 97 98 and um, and in creating all of this is like oh i'm getting all the warm and fuzzies about about this like internet technical or not internet but uh, movie industry technical history yeah absolutely i think 
doing the research for this, like the camera work was almost as impressive as the bigature and model work. Um, and I think that's something that kind of, we don't think about the camera a lot. Like um, I'm a big fan of the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies. Um, and I'm mostly a big fan of them because of the stunt work um, in them. But then what it really is, is that they build cameras around capturing that stunt work correctly so that you can see that it is actually Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane or whatever the fuck he's doing at any given moment. Um, and it's not just the fact that these actors are doing something or these models are built, but it's like they are forwarding camera technology. I think what they used for like the swoops and pans around the walls of Helm's Deep, they had to build smaller cameras than ever existed before, but they still need to be able to pick up all that detail work that you see on the walls, the little cracks, the little you know chunks that are missing. Um, like they have to preserve all that. And then like you say, they have to blend that in then with the visual effects or actual real people at various points. It's it's one of those things that's like all of this could have been done just completely in a computer. And that's how it would probably be done now. Um, but the fact that they actually spent, you know, a thousand days of labor um, to actually create these really speaks to it. And maybe that a thousand days of labor might not be so hot when we get deeper into what Weta Workshop has been doing the last couple of decades. <laughs> um, but it's still like, it's craftsmanship that you just don't see in films that much anymore. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And, and it was the thing that, that struck me about uh, the, the sort of genesis of ILM. Um, and, and that is also uh, true in sort of smaller spurts for what a workshop is that like the people that they were getting to make the, you know, either to make the boom arms for the cameras or to make the cameras themselves or to make the miniatures weren't people who did this by trade. You know, they, they didn't go to, uh, you know, uh, they didn't go to art school or film school to become um, you know, miniature artists or uh, camera inventors. You know, they they are machinists by trade. They they are people who work on uh, on on uh, other types of industry. You know, the medical industry or or the automobile industry is another big one. Um, or they are people who have a background in um you know making scale models as architects or or as town planners and and they take. They don't sort of close themselves in or box themselves in by only taking from expertise from the sort of film industry. It was looking outwards and seeing, you know, where is their craftsmanship, you know, and where is their talent and skill and knowledge um, outside the movie industry that that can be brought in and and adapted to what is going on here. And and that is where the sort of leaps and bounds and in, in, in technological success um, and technical success comes from in this. Um, I, I, and you see it. Um, I think, you know, in in The Lord of the Rings and in the way that The Lord of the Rings, um, the films, but also, of course, the books, but mostly the films, um, have, <laughs> have sort of changed how a whole bunch of industries, um, uh, you know, adapt to the world around them. And and that is a the movie industry, I would say, of late um, is an increasingly insular thing. Um, where things that happen in the in in the movie industry, like advances that happen in the movie industry, tend to really only happen and only have relevance for the movie industry, and it's because they are both so now so insular, but they're also so sort of um, Fordist kind of factory line approach to these things. Like you say, they would all they would do all of the shit on uh, on computers now, and they would just bust up a whole bunch of computers trying to trying to render it. Um, <laughs> but but um, because of that, we've lost the sense of like uh, it is an art form that has uh, you know sort of wider influence on everything. And, and when you go look at things like. Um, you know, even in a sort of more popular sense, if you go look at these miniatures, bigatures rather, and and look at the sort of world of um uh, 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 of sort of um 
crafting basically what i'm trying to get at is like imagine imagine warhammer right as a concept if these movies mm-hmm. had never come out right like it would not be half as popular as it is D scale uh models like people wouldn't have that same level of sort of interest in doing it it wouldn't be as popular if these movies hadn't um not only come out and sort of set the bar as high as they were but also make them so abundantly clear you can watch this movie and you can see where the bigotures come into play and and it doesn't take a genius to have a sense of Oh wow! Look at how impactful this was on on the movie, and 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 giving people that kind of sense of awareness and ownership over what these things are has has managed to popularize this kind of art form that would otherwise be kind of a small and, and cloistered thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, like they could have easily gone the digital route twenty years ago. That's basically what Lucas was doing over at the prequels yeah. at the same time. Um, and I really like that fact I pulled about how they used dentistry tools for <laughs> Minas Morgul um, to create all the weird shapes. Um, I couldn't find any deeper information on that specifically, but I wonder if one of the Weta people was like formerly a dentist or a dental assistant or something like that. Um, and it uh, kind of fits too, um, not Minas Morgul specifically, but we talk so much about like the teeth of Mordor or the mouth of Sauron. So using things like dentistry tools, which are pretty gnarly looking anyways in the first place to define your city of the dead. Um, it feels coherent in a way that I can't fully articulate. Yeah. Um, but it just feels like perfect. Like I couldn't think of a better choice for that. Yeah. Well, and it's also this sense of like a, a creating a visual language that is is true regardless of whether or not the audience is um made explicitly aware of it. Like I can't imagine that the average Lord of the Rings viewer, and I don't say that in a derogatory way, but I can't imagine that the average Lord of the Rings viewer would be aware that Minas Morgul is made of, of, of dental instruments. But they are going to, they, there is a sense that it evokes something regardless of whether or not that, that is true. And, and it is, a, it is a, a confidence in just letting that be the case without needing to splash it everywhere and do, you know, obviously Twitter was not around mercifully uh, in 2001, but God, can you imagine? But, you know, not needing to splash it around any, everywhere is, oh, f- e- fun Easter egg behind the scenes of uh, the dental tools that were used, uh, sponsored by uh, fucking Northrop Grumman Dentistry. Um, and then, you know, 50 million YouTube videos um with guys making weird shocked faces in the thumbnails about these things being true. You just did it because there was an element of, um, not even an element, because because you had something to convey and you you use the tools at your disposal to, to get it fucking done. And now I'm actually thinking about uh, uh, Steve Martin and uh, Little Shop of Horrors is the, the uh, uh, masochistic <laughs> dentist being the witch king of Angmar. And that's something that's just popped up into my head uh, and will now never escape it. But, you know, you did things because it got the job done and because there's a coherent visual language and not because every single element of the production process could be exploited for social media impressions or for money in some other way. It was just to get the, the piece of art to the point that it needed to be at. And there's a part of it that just feels kind of like scrappy about it, like affectionately, like they're doing what they can with the tools that they have the same way that lightsabers in the original trilogy were built from like old camera parts, (laughs) um, as opposed to now where they're just probably 3D printed based on a computer design, which, you know, that's fine too. But there is something to the fact that they had to take just random stuff they had and use it to build these things that we can barely imagine because, you know, Tolkien created this fantastical world. Um, I, I just, I love the scrappiness of it. I love that. And it's kind of feels weird to describe the Lord of the Rings films as like these giant 
and massively successful movies as scrappy, but in a way it kind of is with Peter Jackson at the head, who was kind of an unproven guy. Um, and the budget they got was good, but not, it's not like star Wars budget. And granted George Lucas had to pay for the, you know, most of the prequels himself, but like, it wasn't like what the most expensive movie would be like now or whatever. Yeah. Um, they were still on like probably less than a hundred million dollar budget. And it's kind of, weird because it's kind of like one budget for three movies as opposed to like you know they made a movie then they get to wait three years and they get a boost in the budget because the first one was so successful it's like no they had to kind of do this all at once yeah um and the fact that they were able to make their budget go as far as it did is really something yeah and i think it really shows like that kind of sense of tangibility i think it it makes the world of the lord of the rings feel the movies feel that much more lived in um and you know it, it it it's not to say that we couldn't get to a point with um, CG that it could feel lived in, but but knowing that these actors are actually kind of um, at points, you know, actually touching these things or can actually see um, what it is that they are that they are meant to be in, I think gives this a sense of of like uh, realism. I guess like I generally hate that kind of term, but like to to give it the sense of like. Um, it, this could be real somewhere. Um, and, and these ruins, you know, it's like Tatooine, the Tatooine set, which is still in Tatooine and, and Tunisia, you know, it is somewhere that you can actually go. Now, very few of us will ever actually go there, but it is somewhere <laughs> you could theoretically go. And um, New Zealand, for better or for worse, is still very much a place that you can actually go. Um, and I think getting this, like, having the, taking the time and the care to have to actually think about the physicality of these places, you know, um, there's a great bit in the the appendices of the the films about how they were having to constantly redesign and rework Minas Tirith to make sure that when the wraiths fly through it, they aren't having to fly in a way that would like fuck up the wraiths' wings. Like the wraiths are flying in a way where they are doing the damage unto the city, not the city is doing the damage unto them just because it's a cool shot. And and so having the filmmakers and, and the people who are involved in, in putting this film together have to actually think about the physical space in which the story is being told forces a limitation, a, a real limitation on the story and, and means that you've got this sense of um, when there's claustrophobia, there's claustrophobia. And when there's sort of open room to breathe, there's open room to breathe. And the story itself actually actively reflects that. And it's because they've had to literally be there sculpting the 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 sets or or the the the, the biggishers of the sets <laughs> out of the foam themselves. They can't avoid the limitations of space.
we find ourselves back with Aragorn, all dried off from his little dip in the river. Now he's a horse riding for Helm's Deep. We, or rather Emily, <laughs> bag on Aragorn a lot, but Viggo Mortensen remains outstanding, and this set of scenes is a nice little showcase for the future king. I love these Lord of the Rings movies in part also for their grime factor, and Aragorn is grimy as fuck here. Absolutely beleaguered, dirty, his clothes torn up, and caked in as much blood as he is dirt. Grimy as he like to be called. Before long, Aragorn finds Saruman's army, 10,000 strong, bound to arrive at the ancient fortress by nightfall. A great storm comes with them too. With great haste, Aragorn flies to Helm's Deep, and this is one of my favorite stretches of The Two Towers. No, it doesn't have belligerent trees or link shield surfing, but it does feature some of the best landscape shots of the entire trilogy, probably the best since The Fellowship left Rivendell. And the cherry on top is Aragorn's arrival at Helm's Deep, a staggering helicopter shot that spins around the horse and rider, giving a full 360-degree appraisal of the surrounding lands before centering on Helm's Deep. Absolutely majestic. Like I said during the Wolves of Isengard episode, I will defend the fake death Christification (laughs) of Aragorn because it gives me two of my favorite shots, the other one coming up shortly. But we're not there yet. First, Aragorn thanks his horse before riding up the causeway, establishing the entrance to Helm's Deep as an important part of the battle geography. The first to greet Aragorn behind the walls is Gimli, who acts as Emily's self-insert here, though our beloved dwarf is only joking about killing Strider. Where is he? Where is he? Get out of the way! I'm gonna kill him! You are the luckiest, the canniest, and the most reckless man I ever knew. Bless you, laddie. Also, I appreciate Gimli's wig here. We don't often see him without his helmet on, and he's definitely (laughs) dealing with a bad case of helmet hair. Legolas is next in line to nag Aragorn. Legolas? (laughs) He tells Aragorn he looks like shit. But like a good middle manager, Legolas knows you criticize, but then you build back up. He gives his buddy that even star necklace back, and I really love the pristine even star in the dirty ranger's hands. Aragorn and Legolas lovingly embrace. I love these two so much. And oh yeah, Eowyn is there too, I guess. But now we come to that other favorite shot I mentioned. Aragorn opening the double doors to the main keep. One of the most gift, most beloved moments in the entire trilogy, simply because Vigo does it with so much fucking panache. The effort in pushing the door open, and the little swagger as he stands there in the open doorway. I know this moment was a sexual awakening for a great host of people, and even I would let Aragorn bust through my double doors. (laughs) Let's put our thirst for Vigo aside for a moment, because there are grave matters afoot. Isengard has emptied, and the Urukai will be here by nightfall. You know this shit is tense because the camera does several smashed zooms in on both Theoden and Aragorn's faces. It is an army bred for a single purpose. To destroy the world of men. They will be here by nightfall. Let them come. Theoden goes into war strategy mode, preparing for the siege. First, he calls all able-bodied men to arms. He takes Aragorn and the audience for a tour of the castle so that we will know how everything is laid out. 
Special attention is paid to the causeway, and Theoden plays the part of confident king, despite little nags from Aragorn and Gimli along the way. They will break upon this fortress like water on rock. Saruman's hordes will pillage and burn. We've seen it before. Crops can be re-sown. Homes rebuilt. Within these walls, we will outlast them. They do not come to destroy Rohan's crops or villages. They come to destroy his people. Down to the last child. What would you have me do? Look at my men. Their courage hangs by a thread. If this is to be our end, then I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance. Any piece of media where characters say, what would you have me do, is bound to be good, and the two towers sits atop that pile. Aragorn counsels for sending for aid, but Theoden is not so lucky in his friends, as he sneers at the idea of elves or dwarves coming to help him. But that's nothing compared to his anger at the idea of Gondor. Gondor will answer. Gondor. Where was Gondor when the Westfall fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? The gates are ordered shut as a flock of carrion crows circle overhead. They will be feasting on flesh come morning, be it Uruk or man. Meat's back on the menu, <laughs> birds. Fast forwarding past a Merry and Pippin scene, we return to the deep, this time with an eye on the glittering caves. And thanks to the 4K HD update on HBO, you can <laughs> actually see them glitter. Old men and boys are ripped away from their loved ones as they get conscripted to man the walls. But unfortunately, they are not in the Goldilocks range of good soldier age. Most have seen too many winters, or too few. Look at them. They're frightened. You can see it in their eyes. Legolas code switches here, not willing to say that all these fuckers are doomed in the common tongue. Aragorn, absolutely throwing his buddy under the bus, says he will die as one of them. Come on, man, he switched to Cinderin for a reason. Maybe I don't like this ship. Now we're with Theoden, as Gamling armors the king for the upcoming battle. Bernard Hill is about to drop a fire monologue, and everything on screen during this is cranked up for maximum potency. The cuts to frightened boys being given weapons, the unrelenting march of the Urukai. Most of all, the shining light behind the close-up of Theoden, as if he's speaking to God himself. Who am I, Gambling? You are our king, sire. And do you trust your king? Your men, my lord, will follow you to whatever end. Like 
the days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. How did it come to this? And finally, we find Aragorn on the steps outside. He calls over Haleth, son of Hama, justice for Hama, (laughs) who is encumbered by hopelessness. Aragorn takes his sword, the immaculate prop work on display with the notches from previous use showing wonderfully. Like Aragorn, it is a little beat up, showing the wear and tear of many battles, but it will slice through orcs all the same. This is a good sword, replies Aragorn, and there is always hope. It's now Aragorn's time to battle prep, and Legolas shows up to hand him his sword. You've led us this far. I was wrong to despair. Aragorn says there is nothing to apologize for, and I'm once again back on the Aragulus ship. Gimli comes in with a chainmail joke, which there's not nearly enough of those in pop culture, but the three hunters' powwow is interrupted by a horn, but not an orc horn. All right, we are at Helm's Deep, finally, the setting for this film's incredible final act. We spend a good bit of time in the fortress before the battle begins, allowing the film to set up the geography of the upcoming battle and highlight key points of interest. One of those points of interest, the glittering caves, we'll save for the Token Token book section, since it, gets a l- since it gets very little attention in the film. Though I will say, in the 4K HD version, the glitter actually pops like it never had before. So Helm's Deep, the ancient keep, is tucked away in the northwestern part of the White Mountains, or Arid Nimras, below the Thryern, Thryern, <laughs> sorry, or three peaks at the northern end of the range. It's due northwest from Edoras and south-southwest from Isengard. The real-world analog for Helm's Deep is the Cheddar Gorge in the Somerset County of England, a limestone gorge about 120 meters deep that includes a network of caves. Tolkien visited the site in 1916 on his honeymoon, and again in 1940. Cool. Uh, yeah, shit. I was going to make a cave sex joke, uh, but I forgot it, so that's cool. Um, everyone, please do me the honor of pretending that I told a really funny joke. Uh, yeah, so Cheddar Gorge in Somerset, share. Um, this is, uh, I'm not, I can't get into it, I'm going to restrain myself. Uh, this is such like a lovely little uh, encompassment of everything everything wrong with property in England. Uh, but it is uh, an area of national beauty, is, which is basically a British um, national park, uh, except it is owned, it is split ownership 
by like the Marquess of some bullshit and the like Viscount of some other bullshit. Uh, <laughs> so even though it is uh, one of these incredibly important geological and historical sites to Britain, it's owned by a whole bunch of rich, uh, filthy, stinking aristocrats that rocks love Britain as a country. Um, so it is, um, it is of course somewhere that, um, J.R. Tolkien held very close to his heart. It's where he and Edith went for their honeymoon. Um, it is also somewhere deeply important for not just the history of, uh, of England or of Britain, but of mankind, um, because it is the place in which Cheddar Man was found. Um, and, and Cheddar Man is one of the oldest, um, uh, uh, corpses found in in Britain in Europe. Um, at, I think at the point in which he was found in 1903, he was uh, the oldest corpse uh, found in in Europe. Uh, he's 9,000 year old man uh, who dwelt um, in Cheddar, um, if you will, and then died in one of the caves uh, and was preserved not by peat bog, but whatever the bogs they have down in England are. I can never remember the type there. Uh, and and was basically incredibly important for helping to track the movement of of men um, throughout Europe um, and uh, really sort of helped to to kind of um, helped anthropologists to begin to pin down um, what humans were looking like uh, ten thousand years ago how how they lived how what they ate what they dressed like uh, and in particular what and why the fuck they were in Britain um, so so incredibly important for that um, is. Um, part of a seam of rocks that extends from uh, the Highlands in Scotland uh, all the way through to the Alleghenies and the Blue Ridge Mountains and the U.S. Uh, the U.S. East Coast. Uh, so if you are touching rock in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, Appalachia in, in the U.S., um, you are touching the same vein of rock that continues all the way through to, to the Highlands uh, and includes uh, miraculously Cheddar Gorge in England. Um, and if you are um, mining coal, there is the same type of coal. So, so that's exciting. There's a little transatlantic uh, connection there. Um, but it's also uh, one of these places, uh, the, the UK in particular, has a really good history of, um, it's one of the few things these people do well, um, of uh, walking holidays. Um, and so uh, no matter what class you are uh, in the UK, you probably have a fond memory of some sort of, of having gone on a walking holiday to an, an area of natural beauty, whether it's a capital AONB or a lowercase AONB. Um, and uh, Cheddar mm -hmm. Gorge is one of these places where uh, every year thousands of people go with their families, they hike, they camp, they uh, are amongst the leaves and the trees. Uh, and to this day, it remains a, a, one of these kind of key spots. It's actually on my list of one of the places to go. Um, and, and so lots and lots of people, um, you know, a far higher proportion in the UK than in the US will have really fond memories of, of these places. So if you are ever in the United Kingdom, if you're ever in England, first off, I'm very sorry for that. Uh, I hope that you can get out quickly. Um, <laughs> and two, uh, worth going to. It's cheap and fairly easy to get to. We do have decent public transportation here, and then you can be amongst the glittering caves. So that's exciting. And just to be clear for our coverage, the entire Valley Gorge is known as Helm's Deep, um, and the actual fortified structure is the Hornburg, but we will probably just be using them interchangeably, or else I will, um, because I am not that smart and I cannot keep two thoughts Same. in my head. However, at once. I can keep one thought in my head, which is hashtag Dyke Rights, because the river that cuts through the gorge is Helm's Dyke. Uh, and so far, none of the movie adaptations uh, have been brave enough to say it, but one day we will find an adaptation brave enough to say the words Helm's Dyke. So, while we're waiting to get to Helm's Deep, 
Um, we are the battle that is the battle of Helmsteep, the battle of the Hornburg. See, we're already getting the, the names all screwed up. Um, the movie has the very uh, uncomfortable, difficult, and uh, uh, at points nigh impossible task of trying to build up a, a sense of scale um, or, or readjust our sense of scale as the audience so that everything that actually happens in the Battle of the Hornburg looks impressive to us and not like a bunch of kids playing Warhammer in their guest room. Um, and, and so the, the movie really uh, does this in a couple different ways. Um, first, it, 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 it unsettles our understanding of scale. The movies until this point have either been really, really big or really, really small. So think like, you know, the, the close-ups of Hobbits and Hobbiton or the sweeping shots of Orthanc. Until this point, they really haven't had to do a lot of the big and small together in a short span of time. So here, they're having to build it up so that the big shots are extra big and the small shots are extra claustrophobic. A, a good sort of illustration of this is the helicopter shot we get uh, uh, of Aragorn arriving at Homesteep. That is an ultra massive shot. It is it is um, it is describing to us visually describing to us a span of uh, probably a hundred plus square miles and. Uh, technically, they're doing it by doing the jaw zoom. Uh, so the camera is pulling out while it is zooming in. And so we get this sense of the, the telescoping um, uh, focus on Aragorn and, and the Hornburg, the fortress of the Hornburg, while the rest of the land around it seems to, to grow smaller in size. And so we're really starting to get a sense of how fucking massive this is, but also how small we are as an audience compared to the landscape around us. And then you compare that to uh, Aragorn and Legolas's slight domestic, and while the 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 men of uh, Rohan are getting their weapons, and this is a, a small shot, um, a small set as well, where the ceiling is a lot narrower or a lot shorter than we're used to it being in in the scenes that we've seen indoors generally, but also with the Rohirrim and Edoras. And um, the walls are a lot tighter. We're getting Aragorn and Legolas's faces far closer up to us. Even when we see the two of them in one shot, they're very tightly shot together. And so we're getting the sense of this is how claustrophobic we are feeling in the up close. When the So when the camera cuts back to the big wide open, holy shit, does it feel like a big wide open. And so this is how the, the movie is really starting to recalibrate it for us. But then as as we were talking about up top, this, the, this movie is getting to do epic in a way that epic movies before it didn't get to do. So if you think back to to uh, the epic films that preceded it, uh, Ben-Hur and Cleopatra being the sort of chief among them. Um, if you wanted a thousand people in a shot, you had to hire a thousand extras. This movie does the really fascinating thing of not only hiring a thousand extras, it then takes computer graphics and computing and pushes it to the limit by doing control C, control V on those thousands of extras. So instead of having <laughs> 1000 bodies in a shot, you now have 10,000 bodies. So it's this really impressive marriage of, of the practical, the, the epic scale of, of practicality with the epic scale of, of computer assisted uh, imagery. Um, and then you have the sort of last piece of this component, which is the sound design. Um, and one of the really good examples of this in, in this sort of sequence here is when Aragorn uh, lays eyes on uh, Saruman's army marching to uh, to the Hornburg, to Helm's Deep. We get the thump, thump, thump of the drums, the really low uh, drums with a good heavy emphasis on the bass that does more than just sound fucking cool as hell. It also gives us a sense of echoing and reverberation. And so it's not just the sound of 
the, the orcs marching along the ground, it's also giving us a sense of how far and how deep down it goes and how super massive the orc army must be to be able to make those reverberations on the hard ground that we see before us. And so this is this marriage of the, the sound design and the set design. And then you've got this excellent use of uh, mixed media, I guess, use of, of, um, of practical effects and, and practical casting with uh, computer assistance. Uh, and then you've just got some good old fashioned uh, camera work to get all of this in together. Um, and, and the things that we see that seem massive are actually in reality, probably quite small. And the things that seem quite small um, look ultra massive. And, and that all goes into the, to sort of rebalancing our sense of scale in advance of the battle at Helm's Deep. Hey, I really liked what you were saying there about how now we're really synthesizing like both the things on the super small scale and things on the super big scale. Um, because another challenge or task of the two towers was it needed to seem bigger mm -hmm. than Fellowship of the Ring. Like you needed to feel, because the narrative does yeah. explode, like in terms of its scope, in terms of what's going on, in terms of its cast of characters, um, and to actually have the production and the sets and all of that feel like it's also exploding at the same time really makes all that stuff work. Um, there's a way they could have done this where it wouldn't work, um, and then you'd kind of lose that sense of scale. But I think one of the reasons this trilogy works is that as the story progresses, everything feels like it's bigger. And going back to what I said earlier, this isn't like most sequel series of movies where the first one's successful, so then the second movie gets like twice the budget to expand. This is doing it all with basically a set budget amount from the go. And then I'm sure they're able to use the like box office for Fellowship of the Ring to do some reshoots for Two Towers and Return of the King, but it's not to the extent that, say, an Avengers 2 is able to expand on an Avengers yeah. 1 or and something. And so it like means that. they've they've got to have a sort of coherent sense of scale from the get-go, right? Like when, when they're filming Fellowship and when we're seeing mm -hmm, the Shire mm -hmm. for the first time, that isn't going to get changed relatively as the as the, the the series progresses. The Shire, if you have, you know, Shire be your one on the scale, it will always be your one on the scale and it will always look like that. And 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 it, having that like that and not being able to go back and sort of retrofit it is like is the reason why these work so well and is why the sort of climax at, at Helm's Deep feels so impressive because we know that there is a there is a static sense of what the small is in this movie. So let's talk about the defensive fortifications now. About 400 meters in front of the fortress is Helm's Dyke, Wait. Rohan's favorite lesbian. But, hey, yes. can I make that joke? <laughs> uh, it's an outer trench and rampart that really isn't included in the film at all. What we do see is the Deeping Wall, where Aragorn and company set up their battalion for the upcoming battle. The wall was about 20 feet high and wide enough for four men to walk abreast, and connects to the fortress on one end and the gorge wall on the other. The parapets were supposedly built especially high, so it's not just a dwarf joke when Gimli says they could have picked a better <laughs> spot. The topmost of the wall was curved to make it more difficult for enemies to raise ladders in a siege, which is really hard to kind of show in a film, though you can perhaps point to the little hooks on the Urukai ladders to help secure them to the wall. We'll worry about all that when we get to the battle itself. The one soft spot in the wall is, of course, the culvert, which is where the deeping stream flowed out of the glitter glittering caves, circling under the main causeway and through the Helm's Dyke out into the plains of Rohan. 
facing out from the walls to the far left is the main keep with the long causeway ramp leading up to the main gate, the very one Aragorn and Gimli will clear out later in the battle. The walls around the main keep are higher than the deeping wall. That's the area where the orcs have to use the giant artillery crossbows to help get the ladders up. These higher walls protect the Hornburg proper, which the film depicts as being up a couple flights of stairs that circle around inside this higher wall. This is also where the film includes a statue of Helm Hammerhand, shown grasping a hammer in his left hand and a horn in his right. The horn of Helm Hammerhand, of course, plays a major part in the climax, but we will save that discussion for that episode. I'll let Emily get into some of the broader history surrounding Helm's Deep and the Hornburg here in a second. The fortress was originally built in the Second Age by the men of Gondor. As with Isengard, they were meant to be two fortresses that guarded the gap between the White and Misty Mountains, and was named Algorand by them. The Rohirrim would come to call it Southburg, which I guess means South Fortress? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, we see a lot of the uh, the influence of and the, the competing, I think, ideologies of the old English naming versus the Cinder naming, and that's something I think we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but the Helm's Deep, the story of Helm's Deep and the, the story of the Hornburg is, in a sense, the story of uh, the Rohirrim. Um, as you say, uh, Helm's Deep, uh, the, the fortress at the Hornburg, um, Aglarand, as it was in Sindarin, was um, originally scoped out and, and the sort of foundations of it were laid by the Numenorians in the Second Age. So this is thousands of years preceding the, the Battle of the Hornburg. Um, and uh, once the Numenorian colonists become the, the sort of last men standing of uh, Numenor's legacy in the Kingdom of Gondor, and they continue to populate it, but, but sort of only lightly. Um, the uh, the easternmost borders are not the borders of uh, the greatest sort of heat for the the Gondorim at, at that time or ever really. Um, so until uh, the cessation of uh, Kaelinarathon, which is the the land of Rohan when it was owned by the Gondorim, it is sort of uh, a, a very quiet kind of tidy outpost, uh, not something that they are particularly. Um, uh, forceful about defending, mostly because it doesn't really need any forceful defending. Um, in the uh, middle of the Third Age, after uh, a civil war uh, almost breaks apart Gondor, and after a plague uh, rips through the the country, massively depleting its population, I think it is like quite literally decimates its population. Uh, Caelan Arthon is ceded to uh, a group of people who helped the Gondorim in their fight against the Wayne Riders. These people are uh, the plains dwellers, the nomadic. Uh, cavalry men from from Ravanian from the north, uh, and they later come to be known as the Rohirrim, the horse lords. Uh, to themselves, they are known as the Aerolingus. Um, and uh, the Hornburg is kind of fascinating in some ways because it is largely in a state of disrepair by the time that the keys to the kingdom are quite literally handed over by um, by uh, Kyrian, the sturd Kyrian, to Aerol, the the young. Um, but the Gondorim actually hang around uh, and help repair the Hornburg uh, before the Rohirrim get it fully. So they get a brand spanking, well, not brand spanking new, but a recently refreshed, recently <laughs> renovated uh, Hornburg, the Rohirrim do, uh, on, on their entry to the kingdom. Um, and for the most part, they do not need this in, in any sort of concerted way. 
until uh, they get into a bit of a bitch fight with the Dunlendings, the hillmen to the to the south and uh, west of of uh, of, of Rohan. Um, and there are a series of skirmishes. There's a series of series of fights. There's a lot of sort of Game of Thrones esque uh, uh, political sort of maneuvering. Uh, there's an attempted sort of uh, arranged marriage gone awry uh, with a with a lad named Wolf. Um, and uh, Wolf uh, <laughs> Wolf does not get to make the marriage. Uh, he is a Dunlending prince. Uh, instead, he just takes over the whole fucking kingdom, as one does. Uh, and he manages to chase Throhirim out of Edoras um, and out of vast swathes of their land and into, uh, into the Hornburg, into Helm's Deep. And they spend a long winter there, and that long winter becomes a, a sort of key um a historical sort of moment uh, a, a historic identity building moment for the Rohirrim uh, because it is where Helm Hammerhand as their king um really emerges as the legendary figure he he becomes um and he renames parts of the Hornburg um in his own honor as one does um and uh, from from his point at the the Hornburg, while uh, Wolf is living it up in uh, in in Hedoras, uh, having killed Prince Halith, and, and that's a name that we'll come back to slightly later because uh, it gets drawn into the movies. Um, Helm Hammerhand manages to pull his shit together uh, and get back to Edoras and and retake Rohan for the Rohirrim. Um, but what is absolutely crucial to know about the history of the Hornburg uh, and its relationship to the Rohirrim is that ending up in the Hornburg is not a point of pride. Um, being at the point where you've been quite literally backed into a corner um, and your only way to defend yourself is through um, massive walls and not even through the sort of strength of your own offense is a point of weakness and a point of desperation and something that the the kings of Rohan are um, incredibly hesitant to use because it's such a point of shame because they are a warrior people they don't want to ever have to be on on the defense they always want to be on the offense and admitting that you have to pack up and go to the Hornburg is admitting that you are now on the defense um, and so so it is a it is a it is a point of sadness that they are in the Hornburg it is a sign of the the loss um, and the sort of desperation of the Rohirrim that they've ended up there, um, and so of course this is an important sort of narrative um, a touch point in in the story in both the book and in the movies, um, and we're getting the sense of the the Rohirrim did not use did not build the Hornburg. Uh, and so they don't fully know how to repair it, but they've also never spent the time to learn how to repair it. They haven't tried to reverse engineer anything. They've just sort of allowed it to wither and decay. They haven't spent any time studying the art of fortress building, so they've never been able to reinforce the culvert, uh, which ends up being their ultimate doom. And so they are people who have effectively sat on top of an ancient and grander civilization and never learned anything from it. They've never looked backwards and tried to better themselves through study of the past. They're they are not historians. And so lodged in this this sort of um, setting of of the Hornburg of, of Helm's Deep is this implicit criticism of, of the Rohirrim, which is that they are not, a, um, by not being a sort of backwards looking people, uh, a historicizing people, they're also not a forward looking people. And it is their ultimate doom uh, it is it, were it not for the sort of preternatural strength of uh, Theoden and, and Aomer and 
Aragorn. Uh, these are people who would have been lost entirely to history, uh, uh, you know, sort of broken across uh, Saruman's might. Uh, and so by the time they are in Helm's Deep, um, we are meant to feel sort of through the power of the history that radiates out through the sort of inherently Gondorian nature of of what the Hornburg is. Um, and it's the fact that it is now largely a decrepit piece of uh, of architecture and the fact that it's a an entirely defensive piece of architecture not an offensive piece of arch- architecture we we are meant to feel the sense that this is a this is a civilization this is a kingdom these are people at the end of their time they are they are if they come through this they will have to be coming through this as a deeply changed people because as they are now they will not survive yeah this is one of the places where i kind of like that the book and the film are kind of different, but they both make sense in that context. Um, like here in the films, I always read it as specifically because Aomer and all his Aored were gone and they didn't really have cavalry. Um, there's nothing much they could do but take a defensive stance. And I know in the book, it's a little more that Gandalf kind of urges them there. So it sets up like his, you know, big machinations behind the scenes. Um, but I feel like it still works. And I think you really get that sense of dread Um Mostly because the film tells you specifically, like, he shouldn't be going to Helm's Deep. Um, But I I feel like it's a very effective way where the adaptation and the original both work in their own context, but still have, like, the same kind of theming behind it, which I think really works Yeah, and it's all about this sense of, like, having to move, having to give up. Um, your position on the map is a loss. Uh, and, and so it sets up when you get to the fortress city of Minas Tirith, uh, this sense that if, if Minas Tirith is lost and they lose that position on the map, bad things are going to come. So next, let's talk about one of my <laughs> favorite ships, Legolorn or Aragolas, whatever. Aragorn and Legolas are buddies. We've known this since the Council of Elrond. But this block of scenes probably has the meatiest interaction between the two and is generally credited for launching all the slash fic and slash art associated with them. There's a mini three-act structure to all this. The first is upon Aragorn's return to the keep and Legolas stepping into Aragorn's way as he makes his way to the Hornburg in order to return to him the Evenstar. It's funny because this is ostensibly about Arwen and Eowyn is watching all this unfold, But it's Aragorn and Legolas who are looking deeply into each other's eyes and souls as the scene unfolds. They embrace, Legolas gets in two jokes here, you're late and you look terrible, which honestly might be the most characterization-dense scene for our elf friend all trilogy. I also like how Aragorn and Legolas interact bilingually, flipping between Sindarin and the common tongue. I wonder what else they do with their tongues. The the, the second half... The second part of this is the first interaction in the armory, when Gimli and Legolas are doing some light ageism against the Rohan conscripted. Legolas despairs because they're all going to die, and Aragorn is defiant because Hollywood great man's hero journey industrial complex tells us he should be. He'll die as one of them, forgetting that him and Legolas were trying not to say all this out loud. Aragorn dips out, and Legolas has my approach, being annoyingly pursuant. But Gimli tells him to wait a few days before texting back. He just needs a little bit of space. Solid relationship advice (laughs) from the dwarf. Lastly, after Aragorn boosts his own spirits by telling a newly orphaned Halith that his dingy sword ain't that bad, Legolas shows up to help Aragorn dress himself, holding his longsword out for him. The innuendo is as plain as day. 
Legolas apologizes. Aragorn says, no need, bro. And they hug again. A perfect little three-axe love story buried in the battle preparation. You can even treat the elf horn as symbolic <laughs> of orgasm. There are more important things to touch on, but I have to stop to point out that the biggest reason I am okay with the Aragorn fake death nonsense is the shots it sets up. We talked about the helicopter shot in the recap with Howard Shore's score soaring as camera, horse, and rider are in perfect sync, crescendoing a hill and the helicopter completing its 180-degree turn, giving us a full 360 view of the Deeping Coombe and the Gorge. It's a shot that doesn't need to be there. You can have Aragorn in an open field for a while and then at the causeway, but they went with the big shot. In fact, it's something these films are really good at, establishing shots when people arrive at places to give you a moment to bask in the scope and the scale. The second incredible shot is, of course, Aragorn hoisting open these double doors to the Hornburg. It was the perfect shot to end the trailer for this film, and at my local indie showing of it last year, uh, the whole theater hooted and hollered when he (laughs) stepped through those doors. It's a very sexy moment, one that causes many awakenings, and sure, I'd like Vigo to open me up as well. Vigo even does this little swagger rock once opened, linger in the doorway for half a second. Very, very hot. Vigo may be hot, but Bernard Hill does the heavy lifting in the scene, communicating dread but also strength, even if some of that strength is a performance to hold his men together. I don't want to retread too much old ground, but we've talked about how Theoden serves as Aragorn's own growth into Monarch. And whereas Aragorn gets to be the spark in all this, Theoden's attitude shows his quality, and his despair is somewhat warranted. Gimli and Aragorn remind Theoden repeatedly that these Uruks are dangerous. These aren't just some orcs out of the mountains raiding and pillaging. They're here to do a light genocide, and at this point Theoden gets right up in Aragorn's face. What the fuck do you want me to say? As he's making the rounds trying to keep morale up. Theoden doesn't have many options. Even the riders Aragorn Aragorn urges to send out likely would not result in aid arriving in time. They may have expected a prolonged siege, if not for Saruman's Sarubam, (laughs) I guess. (coughs) Theoden also gets to call Aragorn on his privilege. Yeah, yeah, Theoden's a king, so pot, kettle, etc., but not all of us have the luxury of being able to roam wherever and have friends in all the high halls of Middle-earth. People may want to kiss Aragorn's ass everywhere he goes, but that's not the case for most people. Something Aragorn may want to learn if he wants to rule. I hate when I have to defend Aragorn. I hate it. I hate having to be in this position in life. I'm going to swine and dive out of a window. Uh, However, uh, and as much as I love anyone dunking on Aragorn, Theoden's actually kind of in the wrong here, right? So, so like, Aragorn does just get to flounce about being Mr. Fucking, I have no responsibilities. Um, But the fact of Aragorn having pals amongst all of the civilizations of Middle-earth uh, and Theoden not is actually embarrassing for Theoden because right now Aragorn ain't a fucking king <laughs> and Theoden is. So Theoden should theoretically have the resources, the time, the money to send emissaries out to the people who are all around him. He should be, where was Gondor when the Westwold fell? Bitch, they don't even know where the fuck you are because you haven't sent a postcode in about 40 years. 
So like he's all like, oh, we don't all have pals, but it's more like he should really be like, oh, well, we're all not. We can't all be likable, Aragorn. Some of us just have to be really bad kings. And and how dare you imply that I'm a bad king? <laughs> and unfortunately, Aragorn for uh, not really saying anything, but having the look in his eyes of that's embarrassing for you uh, is right in this. And and this is actually really just a sign of how far the men, the kingdom of men have fallen um, in that they really actually don't have anybody to back them up as allies. Uh, and I know for realsies in, in the book, uh, the elves do not show up. So it's all a bit of a moot point anyways, an end moot point, if you will. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it is like Theoden being like, yeah, well, Aragorn, I'm really bad at my job. Have you considered that and then it being played as like a oh yeah go off king moment <laughs> so embarrassing for him <laughs> Theoden's like I have no friends and I'm proud of it it's just like me for real <laughs> okay my uh, secret agenda of getting you to defend oh. Aragorn is working very nicely but I do want to doff my cap once again to Bernard Hill who is my favorite performance in these films what would you have me do? And his whole spiel on the fall of the Westfold has become iconic and meme-worthy. And this whole West Wing walk and talk through the causeway, main gate, and battlement sets up all the little theaters of the upcoming war, which we laid out in our description of the keep earlier. Yep. And this is also like Theoden gets to look his absolute best here. I mean, I, I think Theoden's costuming in, in this scene in particular, the sequence in particular, is really just the pinnacle of men's costuming in these films. Um, you've gone from Theoden looking sort of decrepit and raggedy to being dressed in these this beautiful tunic and these rich jewel tones. He's got this awesome green cape on with the lovely burgundy red tunic and um, with with this lovely bright gold um, embroidery all along the sort of neck and the sleeves he just looks absolutely phenomenal and you know like Theoden is fully dripped out ready to break Saruman's spine over his knee it's just beautiful craftsmanship a beautiful sense of this is a king really sort of returning to to the his height of glory and then you also get a, a bit of you know whereas in Adoras um before Theoden had sort of returned to his senses the the colors of the Rohirrim the sort of lay Rohirrim had been these kind of muddy musty grays and browns here, we're starting to see the bright green, the bright Rohan green really shine for the first time. And 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 though it is, I would argue, a sort of misreading of the position of the Rohirrim generally um, at this point in the story, it's a misread to just such brilliant effect. Um, and it really does help to show and to help to get us sort of pumped up ura ura style, because the more we see these flags of bright Rohan green and, and the, the capes of bright Rohan green and these young men who look like they are dressed as an army, not as a ragtag bunch of fucking fools, we're really starting to get hyped up for uh, for this battle. And it is like seeing, you know, our favorite team come out in their colors. Um, and so it's just a really great bit of costuming work. You're, you're starting to see as a color palette sort of begins to emerge for the Rohirrim, you're starting to see the kingdom itself start to, to cohere and coalesce. Yeah, I think it's arguable that Theoden maybe has the best on-cinema glow-up from the beginning of oh, a movie absolutely. to the end of the movie, uh, given where we started with his like old, decrepit, ensorcelled state, and now here where he's going to be armored and in these fine threads. Um, it is really a great look, and I think the costuming looks as good here as it does at really any other yeah, point in these films. he just looks fucking banging. So, did you know, as of 2008, there were 120,000 child soldiers Oof. in Africa, which com 
compromise 40% oh, no. of the global Oh, no. Oh, my total. God. Are we going to do this? Holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're interested in real-life child soldiers, um, I suggest you hop over to episode 67 of Podcast Sounds Frontiers, my Metal Gear Solid podcast titled Lingua Franca. And there we talk about child soldiers, which is a major theme through all the Metal Gear games, and specifically our coverages of Metal Gear Rising and Metal Gear Solid B, uh, very heavy on child soldiers. You actually have to fight child soldiers oh, in one of those games. Holy shit. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. If you, if you kill the child soldiers, it's automatically a mission failure. You have to non-lethally extract them from the battlefield and teach them to read and write, <laughs> uh, which I think is pretty That's fun amazing. for a video game. <laughs> oh my God. Well, um, I'm going to treat that with none of the dignity and grace it deserves and instead make a Theoden 2012 joke. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Rohan, uh, this is a melancholy moment in the film, watching the old men and young boys forced to take up arms. It's a key piece to the tonal puzzle here. It both deepens our despair for the upcoming battle, but it also ties us over to the Ents and Merry and Pippin's plot. What it means to be part of an all-consuming war, whether you want it or not. Children on the battlefield go back to antiquity, though generally we see them in support roles until the moder more modern Napoleonic Wars and beyond. Post-World War II now finds child soldiers as outright combatants more and more as part of guerrilla units and proxy wars between major superpowers. In understanding real-life classification, it's worth noting child soldiers are usually considered anyone under 18 years old, and many countries allow or require military service starting at as young as age 15, and in the U.S., for example, 17-year-olds can enlist, so not all these child soldiers are necessarily, say, like 11-year-olds who are handed an AK-47. <laughs> that will be my 11-year-old. Just kidding, CPS, you didn't hear that. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so the issue of, of childhood and war is, is kind of an interesting thing. And, and rather than getting into like the whole history of childhood, uh, childhood is a concept, only a, a very recent thing, actually, uh, basically a post-industrial revolution concept. Um, I'm instead just going to jump to the incredibly grim, which is that, um, not only have we got to the point at which, you know, we have this clear, uh, clearly, well, more or less clearly defined concept of childhood. Um, we now also have, have kind of reverted to deciding that that shit doesn't matter anymore because if you're the united states military um and you want to go do a whole bunch of fucking drone strikes in the middle east uh and you say drone strike a hospital where a children's hospital um you can just reclassify all of the boys there as military aged males and then it doesn't matter because they're technically enemy combatants uh, and you don't have to count it in your uh, end of your figures as oops we accidentally murdered a whole bunch of fucking kids uh, actually you killed a whole bunch of um, enemy combatants. And so that can be kids as young, you know, boys as young as seven. Uh, usually I think it's like 10 years old is, is what they uh, tend to do. But uh, children are always the victims of war, but uh, there's, uh, there's a new and exciting way of, of really sort of turning the, um, uh, the issue of childhood into an increasingly horrifying thing, where, which is that like Western kids get to be kids. Uh, and Middle Eastern kids get to be military age males. Uh, so we're, we're not really seeing necessarily any of that in, in uh, this uh, in this film. Um, but it is important, I think, to, to bear in mind just how sort of like um, not just how historic uh, the concept of, uh, you know, child soldiers is, but how uh, bitingly relevant it is now in the year of our Lord 2022 or 2023, rather. Just kidding. Yeah. 
it's sadly becoming more and more relevant, which is not the direction you'd want child soldiers to trend. Um, so yeah, just very bad. And it, like Emily says, like it's very purposely fudged so that everyone the U.S. kills is an adult male, whereas you know our victims are children yeah. or something like that. In medieval warfare and fiction based on it, like, say, A Song of Ice and Fire, we see child soldiers usually as squires, which comes from a Latin root meaning shield-bearer. Boys would become squires at age 14, usually after serving as an attendant or page starting at age 7. In A Song of Ice and Fire, Jamie Lannister was famously a squire until the day an outlaw challenged him in the Kingswood, Ditto Egg from the Duncan Egg Tales served as Dunk Squire in their little lone wolf and cub narrative. Um, yeah, so I've right. been doing this fun thing, which is listening to someone else's podcast. Ooh, exciting. Um, and it is the History of English podcast uh, by Kevin Stroud. And oh my God, this this podcast is incredible. Um, but one of the things that was really exciting is, is he takes his listeners through the history of various words. And the thing that shocked the shit out of me is the, the term infantry. Um, you know, it, it it sounds quite similar to the French term enfant, which means children. Um, and for ages, I just kind of assumed that those things were like disconnected. You know, you got a lot of words that sound similar, but aren't necessarily etymologically connected. Well, it turns out these two are um, because the infantry in uh, the in the Roman military was meant to be the people who were uh you know, just they were the new starts. They were the greenhorns, and they weren't meant to 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 speak. They were meant to be seen and not heard. And so they had the the demonym uh, infant, and and that sort of grew into developed into the, the sort of split definition of infantry, the infantrymen, the foot soldiers, um, and and we've kind of divorced that in our heads from from childhood, from children, and and the position that children are meant to play socially for us. But but actually, there is this really deep and sort of um, ancient uh, link between between children and the the sort of terminology of youth and and family life um, and and the military, um, and uh, directly linked through through this idea of the infantrymen. And of course, the the people that we are seeing uh, in Helm's Deep right now uh, are not the cavalry because because Aomer's got the cavalry. Uh, these are the infantrymen, and they are the men who are seen and not heard as they die. And they are often the boys who are seen and not heard as they die. Um, and and so this sense of like the the kind of horror of having children involved, but also the fact that like the seen and not heard means that there are uh you know bodies stacked ten high at the end of this thing of people whose voices were never heard, whose stories were never told, um, and who were functionally no different in the sort of political eye of of the kingdom of Rohan to the ten year old boys. Didn't matter if they were forty years old, thirty years old, forty years old, fifty years old. Um, they were all sort of the same in in terms of their use and ultimate utility and death for the the, the kingdom of Rohan. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the glittering caves, which don't really get any emphasis in the films. Um, we do see like the women and children there for a little bit, um, and they speak about the entrance to the caves uh, right before Theoden and Aragorn ride out near the end of the battle. Um, the film kind of has the entrance to the caves somewhere in the Hornburg itself, just like a back door somewhere. It's a separate entrance in the books. I don't really think any of that <laughs> matters. Uh, either for the books or the movies, really. But I just wanted to point that out, that it is a little bit different geography. Um, but 
to what end, it really doesn't matter. Um, um, I do want to. Oh no! I was just to say the geography does matter in the yeah. Lord of the Rings Online, where I, like a dipshit, was thinking it would be the same kind of entrance as in the movies, and of course it is not. It is the entrance of the books, and so I wasted like ninety minutes trying to find the entrance to the glittering caves before I remembered that it's a game based off of the books and found it. So there's your fun little bit of Latro <laughs> history for you. <laughs> I can imagine you like in the back of the Hornberg, like Link dropping bombs, just hoping to blow a hole in the wall, and it just like doesn't keep blowing. You keep hitting it with your sword, nothing happens. Like what exactly the fuck? that. <laughs> so I'm gonna read a brief description about the glittering caves here. Um, they're described as immeasurable halls filled with everlasting music or water that tinkles into pools as fair as Kelidzarum in the starlight. When torches are kindled and men walk on the sandy floors under in the echoing domes, ah, then, gems and crystals and veins of precious ore glint in the polished walls, and the light glows through folded marbles, shell-like, translucent as the living hands of Queen Galadriel. There are columns of white and saffron and dawn rose. Fluted and twisted into dreamlike forms, they spring up from many-colored floors to meet the glistening pendants of the roof. Wings, ropes, Curtains fine as frozen clouds, spears, banners, pinnacles of suspended palaces. Still lakes mirror them. A glimmering world looks up from dark pools covered with clear glass. Cities such as the mind of Durin could scarce have imagined in his sleep stretch on through avenues and pillared courts or into the dark recesses where no light can come. Yeah, great. Uh, So this is Gimli's description of the Glittering Caves, and I... Gimli of the books is a very different creature to Gimli of the movies, and I love when Gimli of the books goes on a tear about something, um, because he's a poet. He is totally a secret poet, um, and when he gives this beautiful description of the glittering caves, well, first off, Gandalf later, I, sorry, I've been waiting like a million episodes to pick this particular bone. Gandalf later is talking to someone about the glittering caves and goes, don't fucking ask Gimli about it because you'll never hear the end of it. And this is the description (laughs) that Gimli gives. I would never want to hear the end of that. Gandalf's such a little prick. Anyways, Gimli gives this great description of the glittering caves. Legolas left totally speechless, which is uh, amazing. The elves have a million different languages. They describe everything they see in the most poetic, romantic language possible, and Legolas is struck dumb by it. His whole kingdom is like beneath the ground. It's an underground kingdom. The 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 the, the, the elves have a long history of uh living in caves like Nargothrond. Um and and Legolas, on hearing Gimli's description of it, is incapable of speech. That is the the sort of profundity of Gimli's description and the the spectacular sort of nature of the glittering caves. And Gandalf's a wee prick, uh, and I'm gonna hunt him, beat him to death with hammers. Um anyways. <laughs> As I alluded to, back out top, uh, the Numenorians were the first to scope out uh, the Hornberg. They were the first to scope out the Glittering caved, uh, Caves, and in Sindarin, they named it Aglarond, which means Caves of Glory. Um, and that was the name that stuck uh, all the way through the Gondorim uh, hold over uh, the Hornberg uh, until the Rohirrim show up. And the Rohirrim show up and use the Glittering Caves as a glorified storage unit. And they changed their name, the name of it to be like uh, Galem, I think something, Galem Cat Cave, I think. Uh, but basically it means in Old English, Helm's Cave. Um, and so the the name of the Glittering Caves goes from being something about the glory and the beauty of it to being its relationship to the fortress 
uh, its relationship to this military structure. And and I think there's really something fascinating in that, in, in that um, the, the, the world in which the Rohirrim live is, is not a different world to which the one that, that Gimli inhabits or the ones that the Gondorim once inhabited. It is the same world, but the way they see it is so warped by their obsession with war uh, and and violence and fighting um, that they perceive it in totally different ways. And so they are not dumbstruck and dumbfounded by the glittering caves. They don't write odes to its beauty. They don't even they don't even honor it with a name that that um, identifies how impressive it is. You know, the, the Numenorians named that uh, the caves of glory and the Rohirrim named it storage unit number 12. Um, and I think this is really something that we're we're starting to get into with you know um, the Tolkien's books love to stop and sightsee. Um, in in the twenty first hall in Moria, we stop and sightsee. We stop and sightsee um, at Nan Hithoel, uh, Hithoel rather, uh, and at the uh, Argonath. Um, we are constantly stopping to learn about the world um, that the story takes place in. Um, and so there is a sense that all of these locations and and historical points of intrigue have value and have purpose. And and they are they are not just serving a sort of narrative purpose there. They're serving a wider symbolic point that Tolkien is making about the value of paying attention to the world that you live in. And um, by contrast, the Rohirrim have absolutely no time for any of this. Um, and though they are the, the sort of younger civilization and should, in theory, be be kind of looking at the world through new eyes and should still kind of be overawed by the world around them, um, they've clo- closed themselves off to historicizing the world around them. They've closed themselves off to the romantic beauty of the world around them, and they really only see the practical purpose in everything. It's kind of like looking at a beautiful desert uh, in the southeast of the United States and thinking, wouldn't that be a great place to test bombs instead of, isn't this beautiful? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Gimli is is the the one who stops and, you know, through his connection to the dwarves by being a dwarf, uh, he is the one who stops and, and reminds us as the readers that there is still beauty in this, no matter how badly desecrated it has been by the purely practical or sort of utilitarian considerations of the Rohirrim, that you should still stop and appreciate what's going on, um, is an important sort of a breather in the middle of the ramp up to the battle uh, of of the Hornburg, which is the 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 high point of uh, the Two Towers uh, book, and the sort of uh, one of the most significant battles we as the audience actually get to watch uh, in the War of the Ring. Um, and so it's Tolkien knocking on the glass, being like, "Guys, don't fucking forget to look out the car window when you're driving around. Put the fucking Twitter down." <laughs> um, and it's important that we have that, and it also sets up this important contrast between uh, the Rohirrim, who are who are this sort of a historical, unhistorical civilization, and unromantic civilization, and all of the other uh, civilizations, the dwarves, the elves, uh, the other men who are who are now kind of sort of coming back into the picture of their world for the first time in hundred hundred of years and also the glittering caves is a relevant location post ring war for both legolas and gimli which we talked about briefly in both of those character episodes we did back during our fellowship coverage um but i think also for this podcast once we wrap up return of the king we might do a like where are they now episode um just kind of like with all the post-coronation of Aragorn storylines we don't see in the films. Um, like, I had no idea, like, Faramir and Eowyn got married and went and lived in Nathalian until <laughs> Emily told me so. Um, so we will probably recap, we'll come back to the Glittering Caves again uh, when we do that episode, like, 
in a year and a <laughs> half or whatever that might be. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to all episodes, exclusive bonus content, including a monthly Patreon only podcast episode. I've been Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASO IAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be using a microplane on the stalagmites of the Glittering Caves to salt my popcorn. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember... I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.